Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, there's every chance you would have heard by now that Netflix has tanked on its market valuation by 35% or so, and it's looking at, wait for it, taking advertising. Advertisers and media agencies alike are a little excited about this development, including Chris Stevenson, the global CMO of media agency network PhD. Some may remember Chris was the strategy boss at PhD in Australia until 2015 before he headed off for a regional role and recently was appointed to the global marketing gig. As a media strategic planner for most of his career, Chris has some pretty interesting observations on global marketing and media trends, much of them wrapped up in a book from his group called Shift, A Marketing Rethink. We're going to traverse a range of themes in this conversation, including a weird and massive blind spot from the marketing community around gaming as a consumer superpower, the future roles for marketing and marketers, think conversational AI specialists, game commerce, clean room development teams and more, plus the predictably overhyped metaverse and Web 3.0 and what we should be really thinking about there. We'll also hear from Chris about a research study of 1,700 marketers globally and what they're doing now in their jobs versus what they want to be doing. Perhaps a little alarmingly, marketers around the world say their biggest time allocation is spent on reporting, not strategy, innovation and idea development. There's a lot to cover here, so let's get to it. Welcome, Chris Stevenson. Welcome back to Australia as well. Let's start with the hot topic, shall we? The meltdown at Netflix. What's your take and what does it mean for brands and marketers? Are you a little surprised and a little happy about this development? Some, many are, by the way, that I've spoken to since it's all it's all sort of fallen over. Welcome, Chris Stevenson, by the way. Hello, Paul, and it's great to be here. Thanks for having me um, on the show. And like you say, it's great to be chatting to you and greatly back in Australia. Let's let's get into uh, let's get into Netflix. I mean, it is a, it is a fascinating development. It's one that I think. Uh, has been predicted before. I think the arrival of advertising on Netflix is something that I think people have been predicting pretty much since the the arrival of the platform. Yes. I think what's (laughs) interesting this time around is a couple of things. I mean, this is absolutely one of the early um, uh, fallouts of the cost of living crisis. And and certainly uh, where I've been in the UK in the last few months and in other parts of the world, um, there is absolutely a combination of inflation, scarcity of resource, which is causing um, uh, people to, and energy, of course, which is causing people to think about what they're spending money on. And I, I'm very confident that Netflix will be the first of many companies to have to face the fallout of what will be um, potentially a generational cost of living crisis. And so um, people are making choices about what they spend money on. Previously, we've seen a massive, really quite significant shift in media um, towards subscriptions. And this has contributed to what we in planning have always called dark markets. And dark markets were unable to reach audiences, and that's either through regulation or it's been through the consumer behavior that we've seen um, uh, of audiences going behind subscriptions and, and, and unreachable with, with, without advertising. And, and, and Netflix is now putting that potentially, and we've got to say potentially, on the table. Um, uh, interestingly, Xbox is also doing a similar thing. So from a, a planning perspective, from a market or advertising perspective, 
this does open the opportunity to advertising on Netflix. But I think there's a bigger question, uh, should that happen, which is, what advertising do we want on Netflix? What form do we want marketing to take on Netflix? I mean, if you look at the kind of um, feedback that the the big free-to-air platforms have had in Australia about their um, on-demand products, the high frequency of ad plays, the lack of frequency capping, simply taking tried and tested ads and putting them on a Netflix platform may not be the best solution. And actually there could be a huge opportunity for innovation, a huge opportunity for agencies uh, and networks to work with marketers to find new, more involved, more engaging, more relevant uh, ways to use Netflix um, as a platform to engage with communities around the kind of content they've got. So yeah, huge opportunity. I think it's the, the, the early the early rumblings of a cost of living crisis and, and Netflix will not be the last advertiser or platform um, or marketer to face that and some really interesting opportunities ahead. And I think let's not just do more ads is what I would say. What, what can we do to use the platform in a really interesting and relevant uh, way? Differently, right. Just to probe a little bit there, Chris, you, you talk about it being a cost of living crisis. How much of this Netflix growth outlook, and that's what's triggered the, the, the market cap so sort of spiral downwards is their growth, their subscriber growth is 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 kind of leveled out, and, and possibly even they might lose some subscribers in the next you know quarter. That's what sort of they're hinting at. So is this is, a, is this a competition issue because there's more streaming platforms to choose from? Is it a, is it a competition issue because things like we call here BVOD or um, you know broadcaster streaming services that are ad funded is taking away is, is giving people what they kind of want with some ads. How much of it is that competition issue versus um, it being a, a consumer spending confidence issue? So it's, it's one of three issues. The first is absolutely a cost of living crisis, as I've said. The second is absolutely around competition. And I think that people are now starting to make choices around the platforms that they're, they're using and they've got. I think what's interesting, if you look at something like um, uh Netflix, a lot of commentators have said where they're more vulnerable is they offer quite a narrow product range. They offer not only just entertainment, but they offer quite a narrow range of entertainment. They don't offer sports. They don't offer news. Whereas if you look at some of the other uh, competition that they're facing, not only do they offer a broader range of entertainment, they also offer things beyond the, the on-demand content bundle. If you look at Disney, they could easily, if they wanted, start bundling up, certainly in the US, um, a, a big revenue bundle, which say included park access. Um, if your Amazon Prime have already done that with regards to the, the, the bundle that they've got, and I think that what protects Amazon in this is that uh, people are going to hold on to Amazon Prime because they're not going to want to lose same-day delivery or next-day delivery. So I think that it's the... It's, Netflix has been extraordinarily successful at doing one thing really, really well. That's now their vulnerability. That's now the issue that some of the competition are more bundled up into other elements that, that consumers are going to be less likely to want to give up. Um, so that's the second element. The third element, of course, which which, which they're all facing, is that the, for, for many markets, not all, but many markets now emerging from um, the, the, the terrible pandemic conditions we've seen in the last two years, which, which, which was a, a boom for a lot of um, in-home entertainment. 
And so that's the third factor in play as well. People are now spending less time at home and we're seeing some of those behaviours uh, return, some not. Yeah, good call. I'm intrigued by your your uh, call to call to action or arms, if you like, about shall we look at doing advertising differently on Netflix as opposed to just ads like we know them. Um, I, I like the idea, but I'm, I'm I'm a little jaded in that. Won't the market just default to what is quick and easy, which is ads, and won't Netflix result uh, rever- um, revert to what is easy for it, the quickest and fastest way for it to spend some money for the markets, which is take ads like everyone else does? Firstly, the answer to that question: Won't the market you know sort of revert to the default? And secondly, what could it look like? What should it look like? What are you arguing for there? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've said a few times before that I think. The, the worst thing that ever happened to advertising was the advert. Hmm. The early generations of advertising with adverts kind of gave us this kind of muscle memory that the, the way that advertising works is through adverts. And it's, it's, it's absolutely not. That is one of the tools. It's one of the methods at our disposal. And certainly in the media world, um, we, we, because it's been our responsibility to surface those formats and assets and platforms and have uh, a responsibility to making recommendations to marketers about the the best ways and assets to use to reach people. I think we've perhaps been more um, vociferous perhaps in our in, in our in our calls around this, but but absolutely there are there are many more ways to do this, and I think that if you look at Netflix through a future lens, what you've actually got are really engaged communities, and I think that if you look at something like a platform like Twitch, there's probably more to learn in how and how you go to market on a platform like Twitch when it comes to Netflix. What you don't see is a prevalence of ads, because what you've got is you've got engaged communities um, that are consuming content. Now, in, in Twitch, you've obviously got influencers leading that. And so you can engage in a much more kind of product placement, is what we used to call it, or, or brand involvement or partnership way. But there's enough there, I think, as an industry for us to go, let's not just default to the lazy on this. I think there's enough potential there around engaging communities of interest, around being content-led, uh, around perhaps um, thinking about what you can do to frame certain time parts or what could you do to connect your brand to certain types of content or to certain days or or, or, or occasions um, that, that could be really relevant. I mean, I think that it was um, maybe Mark Ritson that surfaced a couple of months ago, a really brilliant example of brand partnership between Ben and Jerry's and Netflix, and, and, and they're two brands in different categories, from different purchase occasions, different. And, but what 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 they identified was there was this shared uh, usage occasion, um, and of course, in, it's obvious after the fact. It's obvious that it's a, it's a it's a it's a partnership made in heaven when you're Stanford of Netflix. Um, it's a Ben and Jerry's moment. Or if you can put Netflix on a Ben and Jerry's um, pack, which is what they've done, Netflix flavors on Ben and Jerry's, then you get that home, you get out, oh, let's watch Netflix. And so these kind of partnerships, these kind of um, much more considered ways to connect brands together and engage consumers, they don't need ads. And I think that there's an increasing opportunity for us to not be lazy on this and to actually think about how we can add value to those viewing audiences as brands, as marketers, uh, as we're doing that. Well, I reckon we'll probably get into this uh, about right now, but when you say not be lazy, 
totally agree with you, but do the market conditions right now and the and and the sort of pressure on talent and resource allow us to be deeper, more more strategic, to do things differently when it seems at least in the Australian market, everyone is smoking their tires and there's not enough people to do anything. So um, I'm just interested in whether we can get there, whether we can get to that point of difference where it gets beyond a, a sort of a formulaic or a well-processed formula of how you do media um it does get us to into this sort of conversation we're about to have now where you have been in your your gig and your global cmo role for a couple of months um what's your top line chris um, observations on, on what brands advertisers and marketers are being challenged with right now and how are they responding to those challenges i know it's only a few months but you've got a i'm sure you've got some observations on what you're seeing globally and what marketers are facing yeah absolutely and it's interesting that that you asked this having just We've just spoken about the, the previous thing about Netflix and how we're not how we're not being lazy. I think it's the right framing. I mean, I think that the way you framed that question, going back to that, around uh, there is a lot of pressure on agencies. There's a lot of pressure on marketers, and I think that this Netflix question that we've been talking to is a really good example of let's not fix. Uh, the, the 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 impact of this. Let's fix the cause. Right. And 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 so to what I've observed, um, and what we've done as PhD, um, in, in the first few months here, but what we've done as PhD is that we want to get under the skin of the, the bigger root cause of this. We want to understand the the, the bigger uh, the bigger issue. Um, and so to do that, um, in our latest publication, which is called Shift, we actually surveyed seventeen hundred uh, marketers. We looked at seventeen hundred uh, decision makers in marketing from around the world. And we want to survey the, the roles they're doing. We want to get under the skin um, of, of why we think we're, why are we observing these these um, the, these pressure pot situations that we're seeing in marketing um, around the world. And so what we did is we identified 35 marketing functions um, and we asked those 1,700 marketing decision makers, um, which of those functions did you regularly do 10 years ago? And which are you doing today? And what was really borne out in that is that we saw, first of all, a 51% increase in overall activity. So compared to 10 years ago, there's 51% more time spending more more functions being done than there was 10 years ago. So that absolutely bears out the increasing crime for marketers and agencies um, to be doing more functions more often, more, uh, more, more of the time. But it's when you get into the data that things actually get really interesting because what we see is that the largest function type has changed. If you, if you clump those 35 functions into different types like origination, reporting, producing planning 10 years ago um uh the, the the types of function that were involved in origination, which is internally things like proposition development, externally campaign ideas and development, seventy three percent of survey respondents said they would they would regularly carry out that function. And um, something like reporting was was second at around fifty six percent. That was ten years ago. Now. If you look at the right now, what's going on is that origination has gone up. Um, and so now 86% of respondents, um, of those, those marketing decision makers, 86% of them say they regularly spend time originating. But 88% of them now regularly do reporting. 
So reporting has overtaken origination. Um, so a 51% increase of overall activity in 10 years, and within that, an increase in reporting. And I think those numbers bear out what we've been seeing. I think they, they probably bear out what all the marketers that you've been talking to and the, the, the amazing conversations that you have on this platform with marketers. I think that bears out some of the conversations we've been hearing. It certainly bears out the conversations that, that we're hearing um, in agencies and, and a PhD we're passionate about understanding this problem and also looking to head and, and how do we get ahead to think about well what are marketers say they're going to need in the future and how do we get the resource ahead of that so that we can um we can start to um build and create the capabilities and the talent that will be future facing for where marketing wants to go the, the reporting thing is fascinating because it absolutely makes sense, right? But it also makes sense because you've had uh, uh, the explosion of, of technology and tech players. And of course, they love data and they love reporting and they love a dashboard and they love real-time um, feeds. Now, whether that data is necessarily best used or used well or used well for the business is another debate altogether. But the data's th- being thrown, the data feeds are coming at all of us at a million miles an hour, so it's easy to be distracted. But I'd imagine this reporting uh, burden is probably because uh, it's coming from further up the food chain, Chris, from, from, from executive leadership teams and finance and so forth wanting um, more, more proof or more, more something. Would that, is that where the, what is the cause here? Because you talk about the, the, you know, the, the root cause. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I, mean, I think that when we saw the explode, we, 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 we call it a PhD, the long decade, the long decade between 2007, that, that year where a whole load of stuff happened, including the, the iPhone launch, but, but a whole load of stuff happened in 2007 through to the 2020. We call it the long decade, this explosion of capabilities within uh, media, marketing and, and communications. And that was predominantly driven by the the amazing, let's face it, availability of immediate short-term response data. And it was that availability of short-term immediate data which colored and flavored, um, like you say, a lot of those a lot of those conversations. We could report to the board, they could see immediate impact, and therefore they expected immediate impact. Now we think that's changing, and we think that that certainly um in, in the last half decade, we've seen not just the impact of data hit the boardroom around short-term response, but we've also seen data start hit the boardroom around marketing science, around behavior data. And so we've seen a, a more longer-term, more considered set of data enter boardroom conversations. And of course, there's no better example of that than the work that someone like Dr. Karen Nelson Field is doing around attention to surface that into really senior marketers. So in the, in the early part of the long decade, yes, data around short-term response. And, and of course, those platforms were, were, were very happy to, to have that short-term immediate response flavor those conversations. But we've absolutely seen a change in that. I think the boards and those conversations that the senior marketers that we talk to, they're now having conversations with their boards that are much more anchored uh, around uh, marketing science and, and like things like attention that are now being surfaced and how that, how that delivers into things like salience and, and, and business growth. And, and we're now starting to see the, the impact of that um, in, in terms of the results. We, we 
think that we've seen an, an early turnaround um, in marketing effectiveness as a result. For the first time in a while, it looks like that metadata that the IPA track around marketing effectiveness, it looks like that's going up. This is out of the UK with Peter Field and, and, and Les Burnett and what their work? It is exactly right. But, 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 but absolutely that work, I think, is the, I saw some work last year that was paralleled in Australia on that and, and other markets as well. So, so yeah, it is one market, but it, but it is absolutely a, a very big considered data set. And, and so I think we're turning a corner on that. And I think that part of it is this realization that marketers have to shift. We've got to address the complexity. We've got to be honest about the amount of reporting that, that needs to be done. We've got to be honest about trying to curtail that so the marketers can get back to what they want to be doing. Because in, we also ask marketers, what reporting functions do you want, or what activities rather, do you want to be doing in 10 years' time? And in 10 years' time, marketers were really, really clear. They want origination back at the table. 91% of marketers said that in 10 years from now, they want to be regularly carrying out origination functions. And what was also interesting in, in looking ahead was the role of planning. And I know you want to talk about this later on, but I think that the to address this complexity, we've absolutely seen the need for planning to diversify and get deep in a whole lot of places. And we'll talk more later on, I suspect. But it's worth saying at this point that we we anticipate a huge increase in planning um, as, as a result of, of tackling the complexity now, but also getting ahead of new capabilities, new functions um, and, and new ways of going to market in the future. The key thesis or the underpinnings of shift, uh, some of the stuff in that book, you talk about six macro forces. This is work that's done with the, the Singularity University, which is a, a Google initiative, um, just just to be sure that we're not leaving some of our listeners behind. Um, and I did, I did, we talked about this earlier, uh, Singularity is in the context of, you know, this, this fusion that is being predicted between biology and technology. So we as humans will be part tech, part machine and part biology. That's what the Singularity Singularity refers to. Um, the Singularity uh, University, I'm assuming, is sort of orbits around those themes. But uh, So you can clarify that for us. But out of that work that you did with the Singularity University, you have six, six macro forces. Let's talk to those really quickly and then let's get to some of the roles of the future because there's some really interesting ones I mentioned in the setup, you know, AI conversational specialists and, you know, and, and beyond. So just give us a sort of bit of a wrap up on that one, Chris. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, like, like I say, what we wanted to do is we wanted to understand where marketers wanted to get to in 10 years' time. And then in order to start to think about the roles that were essential to make that happen, um, then what, what are the kind of forces of change we expect to impact marketing? So we, we did approach Singularity University. They were a global learning and innovation community. Um, they were established by uh, Peter Diamandis and, and Ray Kurzweil um, uh, with the help of uh, Larry Page um, from Google. Um, and that was set up in 2008. Um, in California, and, and their brief is is to understand what are those macro forces of change relevant um, to marketing. So, um, we worked with their um, faculty and innovation strategist Sally Dominguez, and we defined six 
They're what we call macro forces that are going to impact marketing over the next five, five to ten years. Um, and we, and, and like you say, we'll only go into these briefly now. But if you are interested, um, if anyone, if any of the listeners do want to find out more, they can read loads more about these by going to shiftbyphd.com. So shiftbyphd.com, and there's loads more info there. If, if any of this is, is of interest and you want to find out more, but um, well, there's a bloody plug if I have heard one. Well done, Mr. Stevenson. Brand integration, Paul. Brand integration. Beautiful, seamless. Um, and so the six forces: um, physical separation, this the sense that we're spending a lot more time connecting via screens. That's obvious, but certainly this idea that, that the time we spend with each other is physically separated, uh, and of course that was compounded in the last two years. But a lot of that's not going away, and a lot of that we've seen um, uh, a much greater prevalence of that, and that's got a huge implication for how we work, how we connect, how we consume media, and, and, and how, of course, marketing can reach and engage those, those communities. Um, another one was around um, shallow living. We are overwhelmed by by stimuli, um, and so what are the what are the ways that we can kind of connect and, and reach and engage people given that prevalence of, of of stimuli? Another really interesting force was around um, trust dissolution. Um, at no time really has has trust in institutions been more tested um, or more valued. Um, um, I mean, just a survey of people um, in 27 countries um, uh, last year um, found that 57% of people uh, believe government leaders. Now, depending on your position, um, that's either <laughs> a wildly optimistic number or a deeply pessimistic number. Um, but, um, but of course, um, brands and the role of brands and marketers in establishing um, trust um, is really important and, and really relevant. There was another really interesting force around engineered serendipity, um, and this is a much better version, I think, of this this of this kind of um, re, what we call targeting or retargeting. So, so the, the idea that you you go to a website and then you'll be chased around the internet by that product for something you've probably already bought. Um, and so, what do we do to to get to a better place? How do, how do we engineer serendipity? How do these connections with brands feel much more serendipitous? Um, and it doesn't feel like we're being chased around by by ads for pants you've already bought or whatever it is. I want to throw in a I want to throw in a bit of a teaser there too. It's really interesting. You, you a PhD and you are very much of the view that personalization is, is, is appropriate for product but not for media and not for communications. Um, just we won't, we can't, we don't have the time to go into it, but a little teaser there. You, you're, not, you're not a personalization fan or PhD isn't. No, we're, we're absolutely not. We think, we, we think personalization has got a great place. Uh, and, and I should say, again, this is, this is very separate to targeting. This is very separate to the ability to reach and engage very specific audiences at scale, which I think is, I mean, I mean that's, that's a given, I think, now, um, that, that every major marketer, every marketer need, needs to connect with platforms at scale to reach and engage audiences in very specific ways. This is different to that. This is personalization when you do that. And and, and, and Shift is actually our ninth book. And, and in our eighth book, which was Overthrow 2, we, we went quite a long way into this uh, because one of the lessons we learned from brands 
challenger brands that were doing really, really well by challenging conventions was that they weren't doing personalization, that the personalization in advertising and marketing and communications where, where really hasn't got a place. It's got a brilliant place when it comes to the product or the service. And if you go to a bank website, you absolutely want a personalized banking experience. But should that, could that uh, extend to, to to marketing communications? Almost certainly not. I don't think I want a poster with a, with a personalized communication from, from, my, from my bank or, or, or even a digital ad. So, so we're, we're actually really clear on that when it comes to personalization. I think that the in shift um, in, in this book, We've actually thought about, absolutely thought about this idea of serendipity and how we can create a much better iteration version of that going forward. Engineered serendipity is really interesting concept. Um, so we're up to macro force four now, are we? Four, yeah. I mean, and also, I mean, decentralized influence. The idea that influence came from a few big places is long gone. Mm. Um, and and this idea of decentralized influence and the, and the influence of people that we might connect to or follow or creators we might relate to um, is absolutely absolutely something that's forcing um, shifts and changes in marketing. And then the last one um, is around purpose pervasion. Every brand, every um, uh, is starting to think about what what their purpose, what their role uh, may be. Inevitably, this is going to lead to a lot more purpose-based businesses, um, purpose-pushing, creating white noise, making it harder to be heard. And the concern, you know, for marketers and agencies will be, well, how, how do we manage the communication of purchase as well as determine new metrics, actually making sure that that works when it's relevant, when it's appropriate. And so so when is purpose relevant and how is how do we stay credible and honest on that? Well, there's purpose pushing and there's purpose washing as well, isn't there, Chris, which we have to uh, to be be across. But mm. all those things are really interesting. We're not going to delve into them because we've got some other things to cover, which includes so this This leads in and feeds into um, these 15 future roles of marketing. Can we – maybe – I don't know if we've got time to go through all of them, but give, give us your, your the top ones you think are, are really interesting, important, and what um, our our, um, our audience should should be uh, at least a top line on. Yeah, I mean, let, let me give you a flavour based on just some of the things that we've been, we've been saying just then. I mean, just to touch on the, the last thing we said, we absolutely see one of the future roles that will become really important um, for marketers are creator collaborators who are those anchor roles in the business that can collaborate uh, with creators, with influencers, um, in, to, to make sure that they're, they're doing things with brands in really authentic, credible ways at scale. Um, and, and, and how do we make sure that, that marketers and brands are using creators, influencers in ways that not only are really relevant for those communities, but in ways that are relevant and appropriate for the, for the, for the brands as well. And mm. um, we've also spoken about serendipity, a role around conversational AI developing, right. uh, developers rather. So, so, um, what happens when you can stop an ad and, and interact with it? Uh, what happens if you see an ad for um, uh, from from a say say a, a drinks advertiser around cocktails and you can stop that ad midway and say that sounds really interesting how do I make a Negroni and that ad can say glad you asked mm. um, here's here's what you need and so that the idea of, of being interactive and engaging with with communications and then also the extension of that is 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 brand avatars you know to what extent will brands want to have 
physical representations of their brands you can connect and engage all that's got to be programmed managed um and built and and, and optimized so really interesting roles um, around that it goes out saying loads of roles around technology and 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 in a post shifted world when we have simplified this when we have built back um better in, in a kind of post cookie landscape with 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 more um more focused activities than things like tech orchestration and um, much more deep partnership with tech companies and um, inside agencies um, will become really, really important as well. Um, and there's a couple of others which I think are really important is we haven't really touched on commerce, but when we asked marketers about um, 10 years in the future, one of the things that really, really spiked was this idea of, of integrated commerce, not commerce, integrated commerce, commerce being absolutely integrated, whether you want to look at it through a funnel perspective or a journey perspective, or whether you call it omni-channel, however you want to frame it, whatever your paradigm of choice is, how do you make sure the commerce is integrated throughout your, your, your marketing paradigm? And to do that, um, not only things like uh, video commerce, developers, but also game commerce developers, because um, huge audiences and, and, and huge increases of audiences around gaming um, and, and what do, what can marketers do to harness the commercial opportunities in relevant ways and in authentic ways um, around that. Gaming, of course, um, if, um, if gaming is the caterpillar um, then, uh, then the metaverse will be the butterfly. So all the rules of engagement we're seeing around gaming right now, uh, they will become those rules of engagement, whether it's community, whether it's around trophy seeking or uh, the ways we connect with people or whether it's uh, around avatars and, and, and virtual representations of our physical selves in digital spaces. All those codes and rules that are now existing um, in the gaming world, they'll form the, the, the basis for the metaverse. Let, let me ask you this, Chris. Let me ask you this. So we we, we have gaming now. It's, uh, I think we talked in the setup about it being a consumer superpower it's there it's huge it's massive um you you argue that um advertisers brands marketers have sort of are undercooking the current state of of, of gaming as an opportunity but yet uh we're very happily firing off heading off into the horizon on on the metaverse and web with web 3.0 um and getting completely enamored by what could be when we have something right now in front of us that could and should be used as a prep, as you say, as prep for what may become the metaverse, uh, what, what the metaverse may become for for brands. Um, what's going on there? Why is it undercooked? Why is that? Why is there? Why are we missing that trick uh, in gaming now? It's really, it's really interesting. I mean, I mean, I. This is probably more personal speculation on my part um, at this point, but I, I actually think that it's part of that trap that we spoke to earlier around adverts being the predominant form of advertising that what gaming doesn't offer are easily accessible scaled ways of reaching people with ads and mm. um, you've got to work harder you've got to do more you've got to understand those communities as audiences and connect with them in really relevant ways and there are a ton of examples of how brands have done that we've seen um We've seen uh, uh, marketers and brands build whole virtual spaces um, in those platforms. We've seen them um, uh, create value for 
um, by designing trophies in those virtual spaces. There are a ton of examples that we haven't got time to go into of, of, of brands doing what, what, we, what we're talking to in the gaming world of connecting with audiences in relevant, authentic, engaging ways. Mm. But there's no shortcut to that, I don't think, or there's not a lot of easy shortcuts to that through ads. And I think that's probably why. And, and we, are, we are seeing a lot more time spent gaming and, and the opportunity for brands to build a commerce layer within that, within game platforms, it, it is huge. But to do that, you can't think ads. You've got to think branded skins. You've got to think branded skills. You've got to think how do you um, manage new forms of purchase or vendorship um, like NFTs in that space. Um, and and so you've got to start thinking about what some of these more future-facing um, assets are. And you've got to, you've, So to get gaming right, you've got to rethink brand assets. You've got to think about the assets that you need. And unless you're able to rethink those, you're not able to capitalise on the media spaces. But but it's high touch, Chris. And this is where, you know, you've got two, well, in, in, in my very unsophisticated observations of what happens in the market, you've got two forces going at the moment. You've got the need for higher touch, deeper community involvement, and consolidation, efficiency, scale, and the fact that even your sector, agencies, media agencies, are not necessarily getting paid more for what they're doing. They're actually getting paid less, and so there's more stress in the system. These are two forces that can't be reconciled, um, in my view, yet, or can they? And this is where you know the smart man comes in and says, McIntyre, you're wrong. Well, I mean, I mean, it's reconciling those two things, which is the, which is the absolute basis of shift. It's absolutely why uh, at PhD we wanted to, uh, to to understand this because you're not going to start to reconcile these two things unless you understand them. There's absolutely no way you can do that until you are so get under the skin of the functions, get under the skin of where the time is going, and then start getting ahead of where capabilities need to go. It, it comes down to talent. It always comes down to talent. And what we're really passionate about at PhD is how we're building um, the, the right talent and how we're keeping that talent engaged and infused um, and connected so they can collaborate in in, in, in really credible, interesting ways. Um, innovation doesn't have to be hard. We've scaled it. We have, we, we've got a collaboration platform, PhD, that, that's a decade old now, and, and it's still powering um, uh, as strongly as, as the day it was first created. I want to come back to that. I want to come back to that. I think we're, we're going to run out of time. So I want to get to the, just the top line, at least, on the metaverse and Web 3.0. Mm. Is it overhyped right now? You have a great analogy. Is that essentially the metaverse uh, where we're at right now is probably uh, where the internet was in the mid-90s, I think, is this the analogy you draw. Um, so firstly, metaverse overhyped? Are we, are we again running at something too early uh, or is the, is the calibration right? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it is overhyped. I think we absolutely are at the absolute peak of that. There's a trough of disillusionment coming. I predict it. Um, <laughs> yes, I see it right yes. now. It, 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 it's a coming. But no, and, and, I, and I owe this read to, to Phil Rowley, who works in the futures team at OMG in the UK, um, as as also the caterpillar butterfly uh, quote from earlier on. But um, but what but Phil talks really really compellingly about this. He says that each media kind of swallows the previous one. Um, an example of that would be when we shifted from radio to. TV. TV. When TV came along, we didn't we didn't natively create for TV. We used a TV to effectively put radio presenters on television, and it was radio for a few years with pictures. Um, and 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 so previous media kind of swallow and consume the ones that have gone before it. We saw that, of course, with the internet, which swallowed everything and and all the 
all the behaviors that we've seen around the internet have now swallowed video, audio, music, and all of that. What we're seeing now is the very early stage of, of the metaverse doing that. The metaverse is going to swallow the internet, right? So it is overhyped now, but it is going to kick off. We, we do think that, that the metaverse is something which is going to absorb and, and take the internet to the to a next major iteration and so we're all now fumbling around and we are fumbling asking questions like what is my metaverse strategy we'll look back on that the way we look back at the start of the internet when people said what's my internet strategy and and we look at kind of like what should my internet strategy be with a degree of incredulity now we'll look back at this time with the same incredulity that's what we do we progress we move forward and um, but i think one of the other ways into the metaverse is that really think about from a marketing perspective the category that you're in and um, web one and web two were parties for high involvement categories if you were highly involved data rich then web one and web two were, were, were for you and we saw a lot of brands trying to crash those high involvement categories when potentially there just wasn't a lot of data there that they needed to do that for. And um, Web3, we content is, is a party for high interest categories. If you're in a high interest category, Web3 is a party with an invitation to go play in. If you're in a low interest category, you can crash that party, but what you do there has got to be exceptional. So understand it, start to think about um, what's working in that space, what do you need to do to, to be at that party, and creativity will be at the heart of that. And, and, and how brands are creative and innovative um, will be fundamental to how much fun they and the other people have at that party. Um, I've got a rant around this, but I'm not even going to do it, Chris, because I think we're going to run out of time and I think I need to get to your gamification platform. But in a nutshell, we as uh, as an industry never looked at what might be the, if we talk about brand purpose and contributing to society, diversity, making the world a better place as we often do in our industry and marketing and brands, we ignore and turn a blind eye to the societal impact that some of even things that social media has done now and what it's created. Um, and then we go to the metaverse and all that does is put it on steroids with the, with the human condition and humans do some pretty crazy stuff to each other and with each other. And a lot of that in, 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 in today's world, which is social media, has been funded by advertisers. 97% of Facebook's revenues come from advertising. And yet, we're, so we've got a good, good opportunity there for marketers and brands on the, on the marketing side of it, but the social fallout's been massive. What's going to happen in the metaverse is, is equally, we need some, we talk about responsibility um, to society. I think we're missing that trick at the moment. Um, do you think I'm uh, full of shit? What I think is that is that I haven't met a marketer who doesn't take their responsibility seriously. I haven't met a marketer who doesn't take brand safety. Um, and I've met plenty of marketers who don't think about it. To be well, honest, well, I mean, I, I mean, you're. I'm lucky, perhaps, in that case. I mean, I've met, I've met plenty of marketers who, who whose job it is to take brand brand safety incredibly seriously. Um, and I think that. What, what what's interesting is I think that, that there is a watch out here as we go into the metaverse. The, the future iteration of the internet is not one, it's one of interaction. The, 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 the next iteration of the internet is of interaction. And I think that a, a good rule of thumb for any market or agency person is approach that like you would a real world experience. Imagine you are building a brand experience. What would the kind of 
security in that physical space you would need? What would the rules of interaction be? What what do you need to make sure that everybody in that physical space is safe um, and that they have a great time? That the, 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 this, this new iteration of the virtual space w- will be similar. And I think that if you, as a marketer or as an agency, if you approach that space, you would kind of creating a real world experience and what are the guardrails you'd put around that, I think there'll be useful rules of thumb. But I think, I mean, advertisers, I think, take this really seriously. They take where their brands appear seriously and they take how their brands appear really seriously. So we'll have to beg to differ on that. I just I sit there and look at the the net effect. There's been some great stuff that happens out of social, for instance. Um, but the the problem is there's been an equal flip side where you know you got uh, levels of, of teenage depression, teenage suicide. Uh, health and, and mental well-being. There's a whole bunch of things in there that we just conveniently don't uh, want to canvas because it's uncomfortable territory, and they're real. It's real territory, and we don't go there. But we also don't have enough time to really get into that bit, Chris. But I'm just flagging it up there. I want to finish with the with the, with with what is an interesting development, what an interesting uh, program and project that that PhD's been working on, which is essentially a gamification stroke collaboration platform, and how you get people to work together and do pretty much a, pre, a lot of interesting stuff globally just talk us before we wind up talk us through the gamification platform because it, it is i think you argue it's also a sort of a signal to where things are going to go as well yeah I mean, it's, it's a creativity innovation a signal to where things are going a signal really to where things always have been in 1990 phd was founded um on the on, on the on the basis on the idea that that media could be creative media could be innovative and 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 that's not changed and and that's going to become it's only become more important um and um you know at phd we we take great pride that you know for for, for dollar spent we're we're the most effective network in 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 the walk rankings when it comes to effectiveness And, and and we're we're absolutely clear that's down to down to creativity and the output of that to to, to drive that and to enable that when we've got a platform called omni studio it's on omnicom's omni platform um, and on omni studio that is a platform where everyone at phd around the world builds their campaigns we build campaigns on this shared platform and everyone can collaborate um, on those um, and we we conceived that in about 2010 we built it in 2011 and we launched it in 2012 so so we've we've now seen 10 years of of that platform in operation at scale for for, for phd and the feedback we get internally is is, is really powerful that the no one has ever faced with that blank bit of paper. You know, when you're planning or approaching something, you can you can build your campaign on this platform, and then over the coming minutes and hours and days, ideas will come in from the network. And every year, on average, we get about seventy thousand collaborations um, on that platform, which over ten years is almost three quarters of a million collaborations that we've seen on that platform. And and I think that's testament to this culture of creativity, this culture of collaboration that we have at PhD um, that, that's propelled us to where we are today and that 
will absolutely continue to keep propelling us into the future as we drive growth for those marketers and brands that we're really lucky to work with. So, so really quickly though, so it's a collaboration platform like a Slack versus a gamification platform as we know it. So, when, have I got have I got it mixed up there? I mean, how's it how's it gamified? Yeah, no, you bang on. I mean, we we it's a gamified collaboration platform in the sense that when you collaborate, you're rewarded with what we call pings. So you get points and pings whenever for, for any interaction you take. Some interactions are worth a lot more than others. The most valuable thing you can do on that platform is suggest uh, an idea. A, a big campaign idea that then somebody will take and actually use um, in that, and there's 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 a thousand things you know for that. Like we we that, there is big big reward when you do the things that we really value and that, that are that are really important. And also you can award pings to people for collaboration. So you can give people pings if they help you with a project or if they help you solve a problem, um, or if you know they just help you out. Um, if you're having a bad week, you know, so people can also get things that they can reward and, and help each other. And then and we track all of those in the global leaderboard. So at an individual level and at a market level, just through a bit of fun, uh, you can see at any given time where you are on the global leaderboard. And does, does, does the reward for lots of pings mean lots of bling or what is it? I just had to get that in. Sorry, Chris. Well, I'm glad you asked. I mean, Jane McGonagall, um, who, who's... Um, amazing in this space and she, she she wrote an amazing book called reality is broken she's an expert on gamification and w- w- what she advised us several years ago when we were building and really ramping up the gamification elements was that implicit reward um is is, is what people find really motivating that that you know we we could do big blingy prizes it's not what people find motivating uh, what people find motivating is is the implicit reward um and, and, and to be clear there are there are prizes and um, it's not it's not and it's not unrewarded but but what, what's much more important and what's more um valuable to those the, the, the people who play who play on the studio and um, day in day out and um, is that implicit reward of solving problems of helping people of collaboration and that's borne out um in in the scale and the depth and the prevalence of of, of the platform so the intangibles the intangibles uh, rule in this case absolutely i mean even to the extent where there are different types of pings. I won't go into it, but I mean, you, you get different types of pings for uh, productivity or creativity or trying new things. And so you can see how you benchmark on those macro skills versus the rest of the network. And you might see actually, oh, wow. Okay, so I'm actually, I'm, I'm, my pings are 40% lower in that. How do I think about doing more of that so I get better at it? And so it, it actually gives you a, a bit of a, a mirror into the kind of things you're doing and and, and the opportunities to do more things or, or change tack or... What sort of engagement do you get with your people? Yeah, or, or double down on the, the stuff that you're great at. And, it, and absolutely, it's about it's about engaging with the network and, and giving them re- work worth doing around the innovation and creativity space. What, what engagement do you get? What percentage of your people are in there? How do, you, how do you define success on that? Are they in there daily doing something, weekly? What percentage of your people are doing this bling, uh, ping? Sorry, the non-bling, the ping, I should say. Yeah, the pings. I mean, our major clients have actually 
actually they actually have bespoke versions of this. So if you're working on a major client, you you've got to be on that platform. You you you've, you've got to be doing it because you know it's where it's where, where the clients will 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 access it. But no, like, like I say, we, we get seventy thousand collaborations, and, and that's what's important to us. What's important to us is, of course, we are logging on daily. Of course, people are, are going in and creating stuff. But seventy thousand, we're six thousand people, and we get seventy thousand interactions a year. Um, and so what's important to us is that sense of scale. We clearly have a sense of community. We see, clearly have a sense of connection. Uh, and what can we do uh, as a network um, to continue to build that and leverage it to make sure our community are connected and engaged going forward? Chris Stevenson, we have to stop talking, um, which is going to be very di- very difficult for both of us because I've got a whole <laughs> bunch more questions. Paul, no. No, we can just keep going. I know we could, and I could. Um, we have only just started, but um, we do a podcast extra, extra. Yes, exactly. Chris Stevenson, great talking. Um, your travels uh, will will take you out of Australia again, around the world, and I look forward to catching up on a bunch of things. But a really great combo. Um, so stay safe, travel safe. Um, thanks for joining. Brilliant stuff. Thanks, Paul. An absolute pleasure. And just a reminder again: anything more if you want to hear about Shift, it's at Shift by PhD. Loads more there to discover and and find out. But thanks very much for having me. It's always amazing to be in this this awesome country. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Postscript there, Chris is clearly in marketing. Thank you, Chris Stevenson. (laughs) This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer, Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.